Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. How are you doing, Mickey? I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, happy to be here. It's, uh, it's always a thrill to be with you, Yuel. Is it? You, I don't know. I feel like maybe the thrill's worn off by which episode are we at now? 28 or 29. Yeah, right. So it's been it's been a year. We're a year in and there's still a thrill. There's still say. a thrill. I mean, I the truth is I enjoy talking to you and I haven't seen you away, I guess, last week or, or a week and a half where I haven't seen you. And Yeah, I was out of town. That's right. Right. And uh, I remember just bumping into you the halls in uh, the university yesterday and it was like, oh, I was excited to see you. Um, so the thrill is still there. The love is still there, UL. Uh, so should we talk about beer? Yes. What are you drinking? So I'm actually just drinking something. Uh, well, it's a, it is a craft beer, but I guess it's a, it's a much, it's a pretty big uh, microbrew. Uh, it's Lagunitas IPA, India Pale Ale uh, from Lagunitas Brewing Company from uh, I can't, Petaluma, California. Yep, Petaluma. Uh, Petaluma, California, and Chicago, Illinois. But this is a big. This is a big. Uh, craft beer it's probably is it owned now by some big brewery now i don't know but i wouldn't be surprised yeah but it's a really good it's a nice ipa pretty standard uh and tasty sweet and uh i'm drinking a saint mary axe uh that's the name of the brewery it's brewed in london ontario so local ish uh and uh, the name of the beer is india pagan ale um and it's described as hazy juicy and aggressively hopped it's nice. It, it's a, you know, kind of, um, well, yeah, hazy. It's cloudy. Is it and, a uh, classic, uh, like, West Coast IPA, like a, like a hoppy? Uh, it's not, you know, I think of the West Coast IPAs as being a little less citrusy, and it tastes citrusy to me. Oh, okay. So not exactly. But it's definitely hoppy, citrusy, nice summer beer. Right. I just like that it's an India pagan ale. Yeah, that's very clever, isn't yeah, it? it? Yeah, it, it is clever. So uh, we have a, an interesting show, don't we? I guess we'll see. <laughs> Let's not presume. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, so what are we talking about today? So uh, the main event, uh, we're going to be talking about sacred values, um, talking mainly about uh, Tetlock's uh, sacred value protection model. Uh, so we're going to go through that, uh, what it is, um, what it's meant to describe, what the empirical evidence for it is, and maybe how we can use it to understand some stuff that's going on in the world. Uh, but before that, we have a warm-up segment, which is, uh, that's that's all you, Mickey. Yeah, that's all me. Uh, so we're going to talk uh, just a little bit, not for too long, about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, in particular, we're, uh, I think, well, I'm reacting to an, a, a Slate article written by one of our former um, guests, uh, Daniel Engber. Um, who's a slow form journalist. Uh, and the title of his article is uh, The Girls uh, Were Always Around. Um, a subheadline here is uh, What It Was Like to Be a Scientist in Jeffrey Epstein's Circle. So, this article, uh, I found this article kind of fascinating because I was both revolted by the actions of Jeffrey Epstein, but also left a little bit uncomfortable by the way Dan wrote about it. Um, it made me feel kind of like there's a lot of guilt by association implied in the article. And I just kind of want to unpack that a little bit. And I don't want to see if you share any of my misgivings. So should we say uh, for listeners who might not be familiar who Jeffrey Epstein was? Yes. Yeah, so Jeffrey Epstein was this billionaire. I'm not exactly sure how he amassed his wealth, but a billionaire uh, New Yorker who uh, was convicted and served time for, uh, is it pedophilia or is it sex with minors? Yeah. 
um, sex with underage girls. And he served time uh, a number of years ago now. And then he was arrested again quite recently for very similar offenses, sex with minors. I think uh, charges were also sex trafficking. Uh, there's some allegations of he had uh, a sex slave. Um, and uh, and actually, he was just in the news because uh, just a week ago, he committed suicide while in detention in a uh, in, in jail awaiting trial. Uh, in New York, and that happened a week ago. And there's a bunch of conspiracy theories out there, including ones that were for, uh, forwarded by President Trump that the Clintons somehow orchestrated um, uh, his murder or, quote unquote, you know, faked a suicide of some kind. Um, and I don't really want to get into the backstory of this nonsense of the, of the conspiracy theories. I, I just saw in the news today, though, that a judge deemed that his death was uh, uh, was by suicide. Um, and he was on suicide watch, but apparently there was some fuck up with guards and whatever it is. He's dead now. Um, but that this article was was kind of interesting because it was specifically about not just how bad of a dude this guy was. Again, he was having sex with uh, many, many underage women, sex slavery. He's a bad guy. Um, but it was specifically talking about uh, he had really two interests, apparently. Um, he had, well, obviously, uh, women are underage girls, but also science. And apparently he has this kind of a juicy quote, uh, his two main interests were science and pussy. Um, and those are his words. And uh, so anyways, a little bit of backstory. So he's a kind of guy who would, um, he collected minds. He collected smart people. And in fact, uh, there's a kind of little tidbit in here about where he was invited to some, some other billionaire's uh, birthday party. And I guess all these billionaires had the challenge of bringing the smartest person they knew to this dinner. Um, so they, uh, you know, and then, uh, uh, sorry, the smartest person they met that year for dinner. Um, and I think at that point, Jeffrey Epstein brought Alan Dershowitz, um, the famed uh, lawyer. And, uh, but these are his two loves. And he, and he actually was quite generous. He was quite philanthropic. He gave a lot of money to scientists. He had lots of meetings in some, I think, private island that he owned somewhere in the Caribbean, uh, where he'd have meetings on AI, on cutting edge science. Um, and some of the most uh, well-known uh, scientists were invited to these meetings. Uh, and he's also, you know, some of the science he got into was a bit sketchy. So he's kind of had a eugenic streak at one point. He had the, the notion of impregnating, you know, 20 gorgeous, beautiful women uh, with, well, with his sperm, of course, because, uh, uh, and then he would, I guess there'd be some very uh, good uh, stock being being put forward in, uh, in in somewhere in the Caribbean or, or New York City. Um, so anyways, like, you know, not a, not, a, not a good guy by, by any stretch of the imagination. But what I found... Uh, so, so, I mean, I think we all agree. And he's a gross guy. And, uh, but in the description of like how we would collect these scientists and uh, uh, there was a notion that the scientists themselves were maybe somewhat guilty too. Guilty by association. So they're invited to these meetings and I think there's some hints of maybe they shouldn't be there. Maybe they shouldn't be hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, some of who, but some of these scientists didn't necessarily know anything about Jeffrey Epstein, other than he's a philanthropist and interested in science. Um, and maybe they should have been tipped off by you know, being flown off to these, you know, the, the, somewhere in the Caribbean. But you know, these are uh, 
you know, many of the most prominent scientists in the world, like, you know, Steven Pinker, Richard Dawkins, uh, the philosopher Dan, Dan Dennett, uh, uh, lots of big name people. Um, and there was this kind of like, almost as if there's a moral stain, not just on Jeffrey Epstein, which of course I think everyone agrees with that, but with the scientists who took money from him. And then there was even, I think, uh, so that's second order moral stain. But there was also some kind of like third oral moral, uh, third order moral stain. So Jeffrey Epstein donated not a lot of money, but I mean, I think about a half million dollars. So not a lot for, you know, by, you know, uh, major grant standards. Um, but he gave quite a bit of money to uh, the Edge Foundation, which is run by John Brockman, who's a super agent. And anyone who's, you know, many, many people have had bestsellers and, you know, academics have had bestsellers are represented by John Brockman. Um, and it almost seemed like if you somehow were affiliated with John Brockman or if you were affiliated with the Edge, um, you too were somehow morally culpable. A little bit, because again, by third order, order association, you are kind of indirectly affiliated with Jeffrey Epstein, and I don't know. I just I just felt uneasy about that. As much as I dislike this guy, he's a creepy guy. Um, so, so what were your feelings? Well, so I guess there's a narrower question and a and a broader question. And the narrower question, I'm curious what you would say to this. Like knowing that this guy has this conviction for these sex crimes. Would you accept an invitation to go to his island and to talk about research? Assuming that I knew, uh, probably not. Um, probably not. Although, as I'm saying that, and, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I would say no. Um, but as I'm saying that, at the same time, isn't our justice system built such that you know you're convicted? You've uh, you served. He served time in prison. You know, apparently, it was like you know total kind of uh, laissez-faire kind of prison time. It was, it was very light sentence. But nonetheless, this is what a judge deemed was appropriate, and he served his time. So does that moral stain carry with him forever? Assuming, again, he's a, he's, he's a good dude going forward, which he clearly wasn't. But should we, like, should he be held accountable? Should he be an untouchable forever? Well, I guess it really depends on the specifics. I'm comfortable saying, like, even if somebody has served their time, I don't want to hang out with them. I think that's the individual's decision. Now, would I hold it against somebody else? Uh, I mean, to me, that like that particular crime is repulsive enough. And, and as you said, the sentence was quite light. That it sure seems, at least in retrospect, like this was a wealthy creep who kind of got away with it. Um, and so that would that would really give me pause. Now, of course, that's easy in hindsight. Maybe you don't really know about that when you're being invited to this thing. Maybe nobody tells you about it. Like, I just certainly don't think that I would like Google somebody to be like, oh, has he been convicted of a sex crime before I accept the invitation to the island? Um, yeah, it's exa not exactly something you Google. Like, you just assume that this rich philanthropist and all right, I'm, I'm, I'm touched that he, he's interested right. in my work. Right. Right. And in retrospect, it's easy to say, oh yeah, you know, you should have known. Um, hindsight bias is a thing in, in prospect. Yeah. Maybe you just don't bother. Maybe you're busy. Maybe your friend invites you to this like exclusive conference and you're like, cool. And you don't even worry too much about who's funding it or who's responsible. Maybe you only learn that later, you know? So I'm like kind of reluctant. Um, and also, I mean, as an invitee, you're also, you're probably not really looking at so much the organization or, or the funding behind this conference, but you're also looking at who's showing up. Like, oh, wow, it's all these other big name people. 
and I would like to talk with them and hang out with them. So I can, I can easily see getting an invite and being like, I'm totally in. Right. Right. So yeah, I, I guess I'm just like hesitant to, in any particular case, be too morally condemning before I really know the details. And I think it's very easy to assume that because we know it now, the people then should have known it as well. Um, and I think actually like that question is less interesting. And to me, the more interesting question is, is there something wrong with this culture of sucking up to rich people and kind of being the scientist that like shows up to make them feel good, like they're hanging out with smart people. And I, I think that's a little bit of the indictment against Edge and uh, this dude who I- John Brockman. John Brockman, right. Is that it's it feels a little bit sleazy to be doing that and that's what he's perceived to be doing. So even if like none of those people um, have sex with underage girls, nonetheless, it seems like a little bit mm, just- just unsavory. Do you get that at all? So the idea, so the idea of sucking up to rich people to fund, in this case, a, a website, and he calls it an intellectual salon or a book agency. Um, yeah, it just seems like this vanity project, kind of, where the people are selected are going to be selected because they're big names, and the reason the rich people want to fund it is because they want to feel special being around the big name people. It just seems gross in a way that. You know, this like anti-eminence stuff that, you know, eminence is a bad heuristic. I don't entirely agree with that. I think people get well-known because they do good work at least some of the time. So in other words, there's some signal there. Um, and I, I wouldn't want to discard that entirely. But but here it really does seem like a situation where people are responding to the name and you're being invited because you're a famous person and because the rich person feels good about having famous people around. And the whole thing just seems sort of gross. Easy for me to say since I've never been invited to one of these things. Uh, so I, me too. So I, I mean, I find that gross as well. This, this notion of like collecting a beautiful mind, um, being seen as an object. And actually, it's a, in the article, there's kind of a really interesting parallel between, uh, I mean, he said, you know, in that, in that quote, like, uh, uh, science and pussy. Um, so he had this fascinated and collected girls and collected quote unquote beautiful minds. But I don't think the scientists necessarily knew that, right? They, I mean, they, I mean, maybe, maybe they should have, they should have realized this dude's just like a, you know, a lech and he's collecting you just like he's collecting, you know, these women. Um, and I say girls because you're underage. Um, but again, that's probably hindsight, no? Do you know, do you know, like during the time, oh, I'm just here because of my beautiful brain? Yeah, no, it's like, uh, I'm not sure that I even blame any individual for taking a free trip to a tropical island, right? Like I might be like, oh, great. But just like zooming out a bit, it seems like, are you going to get any serious work done? Is this good for anything? Or is it just a bunch of people who are famous names like jerking each other off kind of? But okay. So I mean, first of all, I agree with you, but I just wanna, I'm pushing a little bit. Um, how different is that than being invited to uh, Southern Italy uh, in a conference sponsored by a legitimate uh, psychological society and you're just 20, you know, uh, or so quote unquote eminent people in this one field and you're in a nice, beautiful locale. Uh, and, you know, there's probably something that will come out of it, but not a tremendous value. Um, the only difference here is that it's a society inviting you versus some rich dude. Yeah, it's not that different. And I'm not a huge fan of that either. 
Um, I think it seems ethically questionable, to be honest, like particularly if you're using taxpayer money to go there, which is often how it works, right? They have these conferences in desirable locations because everybody knows what you're going to do is you're going to take your grant money and you're also going to have a nice vacation after the conference. And then you're going to pretend it was for legitimate scientific purposes. And really it was you wanted the nice vacation. And like, I think there's questions about like, is that a good use of taxpayer funds? Um, is it, is that a responsible like thing to do regarding the environment, like the high carbon cost of flying people to these exotic locations. And I think it's like, eh, we'd rather not think about it, right? Because it's really nice to be able to do that, to then be in the south of Italy and be able to spend a week there. I mean, I get that. And I've gone to stuff like that too, right? So I'm a huge hypocrite for decrying it. But yeah, it does make me kind of uncomfortable. Right. But so, okay, so you have the, you're the more, the, the general complaint about these sort of lavish sorts of conferences. And it's an aside who's funding. It. I mean, there's an added level of creepiness with this dude. Because also the other thing I didn't mention, in, in, uh, you know, in this article, um, you know, maybe these scientists didn't know what was going on before they showed up. But once they showed up, it was clear that this dude's a total creep because he had all these underage or many of them are underage. Some of them maybe not, but all, and kind of like and many, many, many girls, many just women. like hanging out, right? Yeah. Can you imagine? Have you ever been to anything remotely like I, I have no idea? Like this is so far outside my conception of like anything that would happen to me. Yeah, only in the movies, dude. I've only ever seen. Kind of like <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I feel. I feel like. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna say something inappropriate, but I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now. Wait, really? <laughs> this is the time. <laughs> okay, so one last thing, and then maybe we can move on. Um, so, you know, I think one one reason we could have more objections to this entire story is this notion of again sucking up to rich people or just getting money from rich people, and it seems like in in science or maybe in academia more generally, where funding and, and external funding is so important. Um, many of us get external funding. Uh, so I, I, you know, for us you know, in Canada, we're lucky. We've got a pretty a nice uh, uh, funding landscape. We get grants from the government. Uh, not that many people get private grants, but in the U.S. it's pretty common, or somewhat common at least. And there are uh, organizations and foundations like Templeton. Uh, the Koch brothers have a foundation as well that funds uh, research. Um, the military, uh, the U.S. military funds research. Uh, and one could argue that all of those, th those three things that I mentioned specifically, they've maybe all of them have done some morally dubious things. Um, so should we be accepting money from those kinds of uh, funds as scientists? I think with the exception of really extreme cases like I I mean, I don't know why white supremacists, for example, would want to fund social psychology research. But, you know, I, something like that I'd be uncomfortable with. Templeton, I have no problem with. Taking money from the military, I have no problem with. I mean, but wait, but, I mean, so I, I, I agree. But like, in terms of scope, the military arguably doing way, way worse shit than Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean... So like, have should having taken money from this sex predator be a problem like I, that actually to me is the least of it honestly if he endows some center and they're like doing good research then great you know better that he give it to them that in than that he use it to buy himself another airplane or whatever which is the same reason that you know with with a very few exceptions i wouldn't have problems 
with funding sources like the military, right? Like better that they spend it on your research than that they spend it on blowing people up. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and in fact, I, I, I was thinking about this I, as I as the story broke. I was reading uh, Merton's description of these kind of these norms that, that the scientists hold. And one of his norms um, is the norm of universalism. Um, so what a person says or discovers is true regardless of their personal attributes, including whether they receive money from a criminal um, or they receive money from a morally repugnant person. Um, so it seems to me this, this, this kind of norm of like, it's, it's the statements themselves. It's the science itself. It's the work itself. That's critical. And, uh, you know, what that person is, you know, even if the person is a bad person, um, it, you know, we should be judging his or her work, uh, based on the work and not on his or her moral character. Right. Uh, I guess when funders have a stake in a certain outcome, um, then you might worry that the scientist is going to be motivated to produce an outcome they like. Um, and I think, therefore, funding should be disclosed. But even so, like even if something was funded by the tobacco industry, for example, we should be able to evaluate that research on its merits. Um, and I think one of the things that I really like about um a move towards more transparency is that we actually have to worry less about those sorts of conflicts of interest, right? When everybody's in a position to really evaluate the work, um, then it doesn't matter who funded it because we can decide whether the work is worth taking seriously. So the critical part here for you is, is, is being transparent about your funding sources. Um, and again, I, I think it's as well, there's a critical element there. Uh, May, you know, as long as the funding source doesn't have a vested interest in a certain outcome. Yeah. And, and I, I really do think it's important that, uh, you know, the more that we don't have to take the researcher's word for it. So the more that methods are transparent, data is open, materials are available, the less it matters who funded it. Right. right. Because we're in a better position to evaluate for ourselves how seriously we want to take that. Right. Right. Yeah. So, OK, I think we're, we're in agreement there. Great. Uh, well, so we've solved that. <laughs> another another thing we solved. Amazing. Another thing down. Um, should we take a quick break and then come back to Tetlock? Yes, I think we should. Uh, okay. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So the quickest way is probably on Twitter, where we're at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us or DM it, uh, DM us. We both check that account. If you're more an email sort of person, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R spelled out, not the uh, numeral 
for our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm where you can listen to our current episode and also to our back catalog of episodes. Although uh, if you're a regular podcast listener, we really encourage you to use a podcast client, which is just a lot easier and more convenient. Um, so let's see. Generally, we ask people to rate and review us on iTunes if you like the show because it helps other people discover us. And we have heard that people do indeed discover us through iTunes suggestions. So please keep doing that if you're enjoying your listening experience. I have a, a different request, a special request, which is particularly if you're an academic and you've found the podcast useful in some way, let's say uh, you've assigned it in your lab meeting, let's say you've asked students uh, to listen to one or more episodes, we would really like to hear from you. Uh, so you can email us preferably at the Gmail address, uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Just a quick note to let us know how you're, um, how the show is kind of fitting into your life or how you're uh, gaining value from it. We would really, really appreciate that. Uh can I ask you why you're making this suggestion? Just, just no reason. Just I, I wanted to, you know, read them to you um, and make you feel good. Really? All right. Um, I uh, so I had a chat with a chair of the promotions committee at UT Scarborough, um, and he said that the podcast could count towards my um, future promotion case if we can demonstrate that people are actually, you know, using it academically. Um, and I'm still not certain that I want to, like, put this in my file um, because we do, we do say a lot of shit. It's sort of like inviting <laughs> it, it, inviting the promotion committee to, like, maybe listen to an episode. Maybe we don't want. Wait, do you want the promotion committee to, to like, find out that, like, I gave you a wooden dick? Yeah, see, that is that is the, uh, uh, the, the thing we're thinking about. Um, nonetheless, I think it would be nice, um, actually, for both of us, because we have this process where we're, you know, asked to, among other things, say, how are we um, doing science outreach, right? Like, what are we doing in order to promote not only our own research, but, you know, research more broadly um, and to share uh, findings with kind of the community at large? That's that's part of what we're evaluated on, right? That's um, true. On a yearly basis, yeah. And, and it's also uh, part of the grant application process that we're able to show that we can do that, right? So it could actually, there could be some concrete benefits, which is like the last thing I ever expected when we started doing this. But, but you know, like, yeah, so we don't have uh, sponsors or a Patreon or any of that stuff. And it's, it's half due to laziness, but also because, you know, this isn't costing us an arm and a leg, right? So I feel like we don't, we don't want to take money for it, but, you know, maybe if we're actually making a difference for some folks, that would be nice to know. I, I believe we've changed many people's lives. Yeah, but for the worst, probably. <laughs> Drinking <laughs> so, problems. Right. So just let us know how we've changed our lives. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and give us the negative ones, too, and I'll make sure to put that in UL's file. Yeah, thanks. That's and good. I have no, I, I don't give a shit if you write or not, because uh, I'm a professor already. That's right. You don't, you don't need to get promoted anymore. Some of us are not that lucky. That's not, that is true. Okay, so Mickey, uh, you've changed up beers. What are you drinking? Um, so I think this is uh, uh, <laughs> apropos beer for uh, our episode today where we're talking about sacred values. Um, I found a, a beer in my fridge. This was like a leftover from, from a party I had, uh, I think, a month ago. It's called Diversity. The, the beer is called Diversity, and it's a Hellas lager. So it's just a, a simple, simple lager. And this is by Lost Craft, a, a microbrew here in Toronto. And I want to read uh, their 
I'm not sure if it's their full motto or just the motto for this specific beer, uh, but I would like to read it because it's uh, interesting. Um, Toronto is inclusive and multicultural. Values at the core of what we represent. A city filled with limitless creativity and talent. Diversity is our beer from Toronto for everyone. Um, and it's and, oh, and then also they have a, a schematic of the CN Tower, our big famous uh, massive tower uh, right downtown. And it's uh, the schematic is written in uh, I don't know tw- two you know twenty to thirty different languages. Uh, the shape of the CN Tower, so to show our diversity, I guess. Um, and it's true, you know, Toronto is incredibly diverse. But I just find this so I find it kind of crass, to be honest, that they would. Um, they are marketing a beer based on some core value that we have. It's, they're trying to make money off a value that we have as a, as a, as a culture, as a city. Um, it's kind of like what Clay Routledge calls a woke capitalism. Um, and I just find it interesting. Yeah. So this is uh, such a great lead in to our topic. Uh, but I guess first you got to mock me um, for still drinking the same beer. Yeah. You're still drinking your, your same beer. I'm not going to mock you that badly because I know you are mentally preparing for tomorrow. That's right. So my tenure party rescheduled because as faithful listeners will remember, I, the first time scheduled a trip out of town, the same time that I had scheduled the party. So it got rescheduled and now it's kind of an end of summer slash tenure party. It's going to be probably heavy drinking. Not that that we encourage that sort of behavior, but it will be. And I, I need to, uh, I need to uh, leave a little gas in the tank, you know. So I'm I'm gonna keep it to one beer tonight. It's it was a can, you know. So it was like a it was a big can. Yeah, sure. it was a big can. Sure. It was like I mean, a, so I, I'm still drinking one more beer than you. You are maybe two. Yeah. Um. So I just wonder, can I? Am I allowed to say like, it, what if I hated this beer? Not not because it's called diversity, but uh, just you you think it tastes gross? Yeah. yeah no, course. it does. It doesn't. I, it's just a plain old lager. It's it's it's, it's, it's good. It's normal. It's normal. Yeah. <laughs> right. But if it feels almost like you have to like the beer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're a bad person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, sir, are a racist if you don't like that beer. Diversity beer. Yeah. And I have to say, like, now that you're back from Bali a little while, you're really losing your brown person credibility. <laughs> you're becoming <laughs> whiter and whiter. It's true. So, yeah, you got to watch. You got to watch it, man. Right. You got to be careful. Okay. Um, so I, I said a minute ago, this is a great lead into the topic. Um, and the reason that I say that is, is what you just said is we have this value that we consider to be more really important, um, that of diversity. And what these marketers are doing, at least in your perception, is they're taking it and they're sort of commercializing it, right? So there's sort of a market intrusion into something that you regard as morally important, right? And that makes you feel uncomfortable, maybe, um, maybe a little annoyed, maybe in more extreme cases, it would even make you feel outraged. Um, And that's the idea um, behind I'm going to be talking mainly about Phil Tetlock and colleagues, uh, their work on this. They call this sacred values. Um, I should say that they're not the only people to study this. So this has been studied under other names as well. I I think we're just going to stick with the sacred values terminology just to keep things manageable. Um, So so they say basically um, that we have these things that are called sacred values uh, and they define that as uh, a value that a moral community treats as possessing transcendental significance that precludes comparisons, trade-offs, or indeed any mingling with secular values, right? So once a value becomes sacralized, if it gets 
contaminated by secular values. So for example, this company trying to sell more beer, that's something that people find morally unpleasant. And that's going to lead them um, to be reactive and unhappy in various ways. Um, now, before I go any further, um, I should say that mostly what I'm going to be drawing from is a 2003 paper that Tetlock solo authored in Ticks called Thinking the Unthinkable, Sacred Values, and Taboo Cognitions. It's a great paper. I found it to be very accessible, although his writing, I will admit, is polarizing. Mickey, you were saying that you found it a little hard to read. Yeah, I found it uh, not in, impenetrable is too strong of a word, but uh, as someone who I, I like writing uh, and I really value clear writing, it, it wasn't clear. I, I felt he could have... It's clear there are really good ideas in there, but... Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like the way he wrote about it. So I, I would, you know, I'm hoping you'll help me unpack some of the ideas. Yeah. So I, I enjoy his writing, but it's definitely like a certain kind of exuberant where he doesn't try to make it simple for the reader. Um, I think that's very fair to say. And if you talk to him in person, he's exactly the same way. Uh, so it's, it's easy to get lost, but I think there's a, a lot in this paper, um, a lot of stuff that like really seems to be relevant, um, to lots of stuff that's, that's happening. Um, so, yeah, this uh, this ticks paper is a great place to start. We'll put a note, uh, a link to that in the show notes. Um, if you want a lot of the kind of empirical data behind the ticks piece, there's uh, a piece in JPSB, uh, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 2000 by Tetlock, Crystal, Elson, Green, and Lerner um, called The Psychology of the Unthinkable Taboo Trade-Offs, Forbidden Base Rates, and Heretical Counterfactuals. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. That one is a beast. Um, I used to assign that in my undergraduate moral reasoning class and I stopped because like the kids would cry. So if you really want the details, um, that's, uh, that's the place to go. Um, so the central idea of, um, uh, sacred values, or, or sometimes uh, he refers to it as the sacred value protection model, is that there's these things called sacred values, um, and those are sort of agreed upon in a community as being um, significant in a way that precludes them being traded off with secular values, for example, money, um, and that when people do that, so when uh, there is this trade-off happening that people perceive or, or people perceive violations of those sacred values in other ways. Um, they experience moral outrage. Um, when they themselves think that they violated a sacred value, they want to cleanse morally. Um, and finally, the model incorporates this idea of reality constraints, which is that we can't always protect these sacred values from trade-offs. On some level, we realize that, and we have various ways of finessing that kind of uncomfortable situation. So that's sort of the synopsis. Um, I so wonder if we could just, just to make it uh, a little clearer for our listeners and for me, uh, can we give some examples of some values, sacred values, uh, and kind of how that, you know, these, these, these you know, moral outrage, moral cleansing, and reality constraint um, play in in these examples yeah absolutely uh so one example from my own work uh has to do with people's attitudes towards food technologies um so there's some group of people who really dislike genetically modified foods and they dislike them so much that they'll tell you regardless of the risks and benefits i don't think this stuff should be allowed um so we would call that having a a sacred value around not genetically modifying crops, right? So they're explicitly saying like, hey, I'm evidence insensitive um, when it comes to this issue. I just think it shouldn't be done. And the evidence that you're going to give me uh, that 
you know, you might think would convince me really isn't going to convince me. So is that one of the evidence insensitivity? I like that term. Is this one of the hallmarks of something that has become a sacred value? Yeah. So that actually, interestingly, isn't so much in Tetlock's model. Um, there's a, a, a model called protected values, which is John Barron um, and colleagues, which more focuses on evidence and sensitivity. I would say, yeah, absolutely. If you're thinking about like the overall, like what kind of thinking do people engage in once something has been sacralized? Absolutely. Evidence and sensitivity is a big part of that. Um, these different like theoretical approaches, like they're all talking about the same thing. They kind of like just emphasize different aspects of it. Right. Um, so the, I mean, the, the short answer is, is yes. Um, and then if you present people with uh, kind of, to me, innocuous scenarios that are like so-and-so's, you know, uh, eating a GM tomato, indeed the people who have um, a, a sacred value type objection to GM food are going to be more upset. So they're more angered, they're more disgusted, and so on by those types of scenarios. Um, whereas people who are pro-GM obviously find them kind of innocuous, right? They're like, no big deal. Somebody's eating a tomato. So um, some other examples, uh, because, you know, the genetic engineering stuff maybe might not seem that relatable to people. Um, imagine uh, somebody advocating for people being able to sell their kidneys. So the argument being that there's lots of people who die while they're on the waiting list for a donor kidney. There are poor people who need the money and you have two kidneys and you can live with one. And many people would find that suggestion to be outrageous and they would think that, you know, even for considering that, even for like bringing that up as an option, that you're a bad person for doing that, right? It's sort of depraved to even put that on the on the table. Right. Right. And so are there, so I, I, I'm really uh, interested in some of the features of what makes something a sacred value. So you have this evidence insensitivity, uh, which... Uh, uh, it's interesting, and I, I think I can think of so many examples, uh, right, as you mentioned it. But are there any other features of something that has become sacralized? Right. Uh, so moral outrage and moral cleansing are the two main ones that Tetlock focuses on. So moral outrage, uh, he defines as uh, an aversive arousal state with cognitive, affective, and behavioral components, harsh trait attributions to norm violators, anger and contempt, enthusiastic support for norm and metanorm enforcement, parenthetical punishing both violators and those who shirk their fair share of the burdensome task of punishing violators for the public good. That's a very Tetlock sentence, right? Yeah. There, right. I actually like that one because that was like, I, yeah, that was interesting. This notion of not only do you have to punish the person who has committed the violation, but also you punish the people who aren't, you know, holding up the standards enough. Um, right. And without naming any names, like some of the Twitter controversies that we've been involved in are exactly that. So what people are complaining about is not X did this. It's you guys aren't condemning loudly enough that X did it. You guys aren't shunning X enough. Right. So what is that? That's meta norm enforcement. Right. I'm trying to get you guys to enforce this moral norm that I think should be prevalent. Right. Yes, I've. Uh, I believe we were implicated in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we may. Have, we may have been. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's really, really interesting. So, you know, so I, I, I you uh, grew up in a very religious home, and uh, when you mentioned sacred values, the the thing I immediately think of are things that are religious, things that are, I mean, according to the religion, actually sacred. Uh, so something like, uh, well, kashrut rules, rules about food, 
Um, and I, I remember now some of the lengths that we would go to to separate, for example, milk and meat. Uh, Jews aren't allowed to eat milk and meat together. And in my family, we had two separate sets of dishes and cutlery. And uh, my dad was very, very strict about this stuff. And in fact, occasionally we would... Um, we wouldn't even necessarily use the wrong cutlet, the wrong fork to, 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 to eat food, but we might have, you know, washed it with the wrong washcloth. Okay. And my dad would insist that we then bury that fork, like in, a, in, in one of our pots uh, with earth for 40 days or 30 days to cleanse it. Um, now, of course, we're not talking about this is like literally cl like cleansing the fork. Um, and it's like, you know, it's not even like something has touched. It. It's like a cloth that might have touched milk, touched a wooden, uh, sorry, a metal uh, fork um, uh, that was, you know, a, a milk fork, for example, or a meat fork. Uh, so it was like crazy, crazy things we had done to avoid this contamination. But now we're not talking about physical objects touching each other. We're talking about just certain notions, certain values that we have. Right. Yeah. So uh, Paul Rosen has pointed out that there's a lot of similarities between our kind of physical ideas of contagion um, so that bad essences rub off because physical objects contact each other and that just a very minuscule amount of that bad essence can then transfer to the new thing rendering rendering it, sorry, unacceptable, um, and moral contagion, right? So the scientist who's funded by the foundation that was endowed by Epstein now maybe needs to feel bad, right? right. So he, uh, that scientist you know, is contaminated by second or third order, uh, right? Uh, separation from him or her and uh, Epstein. Right, right. And that's something that um, I think is a very natural social intuition. Like if you hang out with bad people, Eh, you kind of seem like a bad person too, don't you? Right. The, yeah. That 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 is true. Now, uh, you know that 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 this kashrut uh, laws and uh, the kind of this 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 idea of even a minute amount of contaminants, you know, uh, touching again a, a metal fork. Um, it, it reminded me of this of this paper that I, I believe is in press. I'm not sure it's out yet. Um, and it's uh, a paper written by Joshua Rotman and Leanne Young. I believe it's in press. It's like science. Um, it's called uh, Specks of Dirt and Tons of Pain. Doses, dosage distinguishes impurity from harm. And, you know, we can get to the paper, but the I think the striking part of this paper is that certain kinds of, um, well, I guess, sacralized things, there is dose insensitivity. So a tiny amount of a contaminant is the same as a huge amount of contaminant. So there's no, no such thing as a little bit of incest. A little bit of incest is the exact same thing as a lot of incest. Um, eating a tiny amount of human flesh is the, is the same as eating, you know, a whole meal of human flesh. Um, and that's very different than other kinds of uh, values you might have, like like uh, the values of harm, where a little bit of harm, you know, just, you know, me, just, you know, uh, flicking you is different than me, like, punching you in the face. Right. And I, I think that makes perfect sense if you think about, like, what are people doing when they make those sorts of moral judgments? I, I think they're often asking, what kind of person does this? And if you're the kind of person who would eat human flesh once, <laughs> you know, you're probably not the kind of person that uh, I want to be having dinner with, honestly. Um, and on the other hand, if you're like the kind of person who, like, you know, punched somebody once, OK, that's not great. But it's a little more understandable. So, I mean, I do think that at the extreme end, there are certain like harm 
uh, infractions that would be treated similarly, right? Once you've murdered one person, you're sort of uh, most of the time an outcast from polite society. Yeah, like that. That's that's sort of like disqualifying on a character level. Um, but I guess with the with the impure. Uh, the purity violations, it's just much easier to get to a place where you're like, oh man, like I can't imagine the sort of person who would do this and therefore I don't want you around. Interesting. So because because it's a, it's a special thing that you're doing, it's so sacred in our society or taboo to do this thing that doing it, it's more, it's not the act itself. It's your willingness to do it that speaks volumes about it's you. It's what it says about you. Right. Yeah. That's very interesting. Exactly. So then, and then maybe that goes, going back to Epstein a little bit, um. Yeah. Okay. Sure. He went to he went to prison and he served his time, but he still did those things. And those things, having sex with underage girls, um, is again that, that that's a sacred value of ours. It's a, it's, it's a very serious violation. It's not a it's not a one that we treat lightly. And therefore, it's not, maybe it's not really possible to fully pay for your crimes. Right. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting take. And I actually like don't know whether this study has been run. Um, so you might imagine that there's some kinds of crimes where it makes sense to say, like, OK, they've paid their debt to society. Right. So embezzlement, for example, it's like, OK, the harm is financial. Um, I've made restitution by serving this prison sentence. And those things kind of cancel out. Whereas if it's, yeah, a, like a sex crime, for example, that just says something about your character in a way where the the prison sentence is almost sort of irrelevant to that, right? So, like, you can't really pay that debt. Now, the in-between case, if it's, like, you know, a serious assault where you put somebody in the hospital or, or even murder, like, how would people treat that? Uh, it's not clear. Um, and I'd have to think about that a little more. I would, I would argue that you committed murder. I don't care how long you served in prison. You, people are not going to want to hang out, hang out with you. Yeah, that's that's my intuition as well. Yeah, same thing with rape. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not you know it's not strictly harm versus other kinds of crimes, right? There's something else going on there as well. well the sanctity of human life, right? So, I mean, human life is sacred, um, and you've taken it, uh, and assuming it's not an accident and it was, it was done on purpose, um, well, that says something about you. Same thing with rape, right? Right. I'm a little worried about like this getting circular where you're like, oh, the things that people are shunned for are violations against sacred value. You know what I mean? Sure. Like what's the a priori kind of definition? But like that intuitively at least sounds plausible. Right. So like when you when you violate sacred values, that means that you are sort of for life marked with this stigma and that people are going to shun you. Um, I guess we see that when people are accused of some sort of racist behavior, right? Which Tetlock talks explicitly about racial egalitarianism as being a sacred value for many people, right? And and for some folks, like, say, posing uh, in a picture uh, where you're wearing blackface, even if that was 20 years ago, it still now disqualifies you from holding any sort of public position. I think lots of people would agree with that. Yeah, well, I think Sarah Silverman just got fired from a movie uh, that she was working on because I guess, I don't know if it was 20 years ago, but uh, a number of years ago now, in one of her, I guess, the Sarah Silverman shows, she wore blackface for one of her skits uh, for whatever reason. I don't know the full backstory, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. Huh. Yeah, I haven't been following that. Um, there was a the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam. Um, there was a controversy where he 
or maybe it wasn't him, it's not clear, appeared in a yearbook photo. He was alleged to have appeared in blackface in a yearbook photo, and he first admitted it and then denied it. And lots of people were saying that he needed to resign based on that, even though that was a long time ago. He has uh, shown, as far as I know, no evidence of any sort of like racial bias or animus since then, like to the contrary. Um, he's worked towards advancing minorities but you know that one thing is disqualifying right so is this is this exactly uh, you know the point or a kind of an example played in real life of this dose uh, insensitivity so a little bit of what looks like racism is the same as a lot of racism to some extent right once you show that you have kind of racism in your heart that's it you know right. you're you're disqualified right yeah. 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 And interestingly, like, I, I don't know what people's intuitions are about whether that can change. Right. So if you're I guess, you know, there's cases where somebody was a white nationalist and now they've renounced that ideology and they're working to bring people out of the movement. And there I think people would be comfortable saying, like, no, no longer a racist. I guess in more ambiguous cases, my intuition would be that that's something that's pretty sticky. So people are going to be reluctant to say that's something you can change on. It reflects such a core part of who you are morally that I don't think that people would be particularly inclined to say somebody can change that. Right. So that's interesting. So, uh, and there's actually this prominent guy whose name is Christian Piccolini, I believe, a former uh, neo-Nazi who yeah. Uh, yeah, reformed and now has become uh, someone who's trying to de-radicalize uh, white nationalists. Um, but uh, he's forgiven because he has, he's now a crusader for anti-racism. But what if you're just, the, you know, the, 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 you're a neo-Nazi and you're a former neo-Nazi, but you're just not doing that stuff. Right. Right. So you're, you're still probably judged the same way. Right. So I guess this gets to the second point. Um, that Tetlock makes, which he calls moral cleansing, uh, where he talks about this mainly as what do you, the individual, want to do if you perceive yourself as having violated a sacred value? Um, but I think equally you could say we expect moral cleansing of other people if they violate as a sacred value, right? So we we want them to demonstrate that they're really taking that violation seriously and that they're going to like symbolically engage in acts that reaffirm their commitment to the value. So that's kind of like uh, Al Franken resigning from it was the Senate uh, because of... Uh, Allegations, which I think he, he he confessed to. I don't think he. I don't think. I think they're true, uh, of some sort of sexual impropriety. Yeah, although I don't know that like it really bought Al Franken a lot, right? Is he better liked because of that? Did that demonstrate uh, the right level of uh, cleansing? I I'm not sure, and I I guess it's a little bit fuzzy, like what you know what exactly is expected, right? So what counts as moral cleansing? Um, oh, well, that's very interesting because clearly that was. Uh, for many people, that was the right thing to do. But I think you're right. I think still, I think people still uh, have reservations about him because of this. And so he didn't cleanse enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he did resign, but maybe he wasn't quite vocal enough about his repentance. Um, I, I think I think it's safe to say, like, people expect a lot. Right. So you're in order to redeem yourself from something like that. If somebody thinks that you've really violated the sacred value, you really have to aggressively uh, demonstrate your commitment to that value. I mean, that's a little crazy. I mean, what else can he do? Uh, 
he resigned from this, you know, an important position. I think he weakened, you know, the Democratic cause because of it. Um, and but he still got this moral stain on him. So other, I mean, maybe the only thing he could do is now become a crusader against sexual harassment. Would that be enough? Yeah. So maybe uh, I could see that um, he could engage in like a very kind of elaborate and public apology where he fully acknowledges all the terrible things that he did and says that he realizes now how wrong all of those things were and that he's transgressed and that he's going to spend time working to right those wrongs by working towards, uh, yeah, you know, anti-sexual harassment stuff or whatever. And he didn't, I mean, he quit, but then he also clearly didn't think that he had really done anything wrong. Like right. that, that, that was quite clear. Right. So like, I don't think he would get full. <laughs> I don't think he should get a lot of credit for remorse. Right. Like you may think that it was a bad idea for him to resign or that like the process should have been carried out. But if you're like, is this a guy who seems remorseful? I think just on the merits, you'd say no. OK, so can you give me an example? This is super interesting. Uh, can you give me an example of someone who has been uh, caught in game, you know, uh, violating some moral, some sacred value? Uh, and who has cleansed sufficiently uh, such that his or her moral character is no longer in question? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So like the Christian Piccolini, the former white sure. nationalist, that's that's one guy who comes to mind. Other than that. No, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's less famous cases of people who do bad things and then really try and make up for it. But like there's none of these like big folks in the news who have really leaned into that, that I know. I don't think so. I mean, so uh, I'm trying to think of some names here. So, uh, so Aziz Ansari, you know, was, you know, accused of, and I think he copped to admitted to, uh, yeah, it's a sexual, I don't think it's sexual assault, but it, it, it was a bad date. He was forceful. He wasn't, he wasn't, didn't get enough consent. And, uh, it maybe wasn't a thing he should have done. And I think he did apologize, uh, but maybe not it wasn't forthright enough um or maybe it wasn't enough of an apology i'm not sure but it, 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 in certain circles he's not forgiven right he's not he's still seen as someone who maybe we shouldn't be uh we should be watching his netflix special for example right right as louis ck had a you know very well polished ap apology but i think some people would say the apology was it was too polished that it wasn't sincere enough and um maybe this I think some people would argue there's no amount of time that could transpire before he's acceptable. Oh, I, I thought of somebody. Do you know this story about Dan Harmon? No. So uh, Dan Harmon is a showrunner, comedy writer. Uh, he's responsible for community. He's now half of uh, the team that uh, created Rick and Morty. Uh, the cartoon. Um, and he had an incident with a writer, a female writer who worked under him on community. And it, she felt harassed by him. Not that he like groped her or anything, but just that he was like kind of a jerk to her and also kind of hitting on her. And she wrote, I think it, it, like a blog post or something about this experience. And he went on his podcast and basically said, you're right. That was a terrible thing to do. Like I liked you and then it wasn't reciprocated and I felt angry and hurt and I did all this terrible stuff and I really regret it. And I think people did like listen to that and think, hey, okay, he's understood the bad thing he did and he's made amends and she forgave him. And yeah, I, I, I don't think that he sustained damage from that. I think if anything, like he now looks better as being willing to like own, you know, having acted in a shitty way. But that's a pretty atypical case, I would say.
Right. Yeah. So it, it, I think it's telling that it was so hard for us to think of think of anything. But also may, maybe the reason for that is because people haven't cleansed enough, or they haven't they haven't fully fully admitted to their the, to the full extent of, of of the bad things they've done. Right. Right. And you know, I think often it's that they don't really feel like they did anything all that wrong. Right. And they're being sort of unfairly accused uh, of you know doing stuff that you know, either wasn't bad at all, or that was like kind of minorly bad and everybody else was doing it. Right. So, yeah. So the way that, um, that Tetlock really talks about moral cleansing is a little different, which is like, I realize that I did this bad thing and now I want to compensate. Right. So he has an experiment, for example, where, um, he takes racially egalitarian liberals. He puts them in an experiment. They're supposed to role play, uh, this executive at an insurance company and set rates for different parts of uh, a city. And they're shown, um, the claims rates in those different parts of the city. And so they, there are some parts of the city where there's just more claims and they set the rates higher there. And then the experimenter is like, aha, that's where all the black people live. Right. And of course they feel terrible because now they've racially discriminated. Now they want to make up for it. Right. So they're more likely to want to, um, do good deeds, uh, particularly uh, to join anti-racist causes to sort of show that they're not racists, right? So this is what he's talking about when he's talking about moral cleansing is you have this internal motivation, kind of restore your um, adherence to the sacred value. That's really interesting. And that's and that is specific to, again, a sacred value, like the same sort of dynamics wouldn't come about uh, with harm, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Like, if you have, like, a non-sacralized belief that it's better that you don't do this and you're sh you're shown that you've violated that belief somehow, how would you respond? I'm trying to think of, like, a case in, like, what are we, what are we talking about here? Like, let's say that I believe all things equal, that it would be better for me to reduce my carbon footprint, but I don't think of that as a sacred value. I think that there's some trade-offs between carbon emissions and like human well-being in other ways, right? So it's a balance. Then you're like, hey, actually, you know, all this flying that you're doing has been really bad for the environment. Would I be motivated? Hmm. I don't know. That's an interesting idea. Like, I do feel my intuition is like, yeah, I might be motivated to say like, oh, I'm going to make up for it somehow. Right. But maybe in more of a like utilitarian way, like, oh, OK, I'll buy some carbon offsets. You're right. Yeah. You know, like that that had a higher carbon cost than I thought. I don't know if I would be motivated to publicly reaffirm my commitment to combating climate change. Right. I guess to me, that's the distinction. Right. I see. So you want to publicly show to the world. Yes, I might have by accident, in this case, uh, I violated this sacred value of mine and of societies more broadly, but uh, really, I'm not like that. Yeah, Tetlock uses the word um, symbolic, symbolic acts of moral cleansing, and I think that's intentional, right? So what this is supposed to convey is like, this is the kind of person I am. It's not aimed primarily at making up in some direct way the harm that you've caused, right? So you can imagine people are given two options. One is like kind of more directly going to repair the harm and the other has a higher like kind of symbolic signaling value. They should prefer the latter. Oh, interesting. Right? So they actually don't 
it's, it's more about yeah, the, the 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 signaling as opposed to the actual uh, value of the thing that they're doing. Right, which could be self signaling as well, right? Like I want to feel like I'm a person um, who endorses the right values. Right, that, that, that that's super interesting. Um, now I noticed in in the article he talks a little bit about um, base rates. Yeah, this this notion that. Uh, that, that people are reluctant to to use base rates, uh, and I think by that he means to use stereotypes to judge certain outcomes. Because again, this is it's a sacred value of you know not necessarily uh, treating the individual as an individual and not necessarily grouping them with their whatever racial or or, or gender kind of uh, categories they belong to. Um, so is that too then a sacred value? Is that, or is that kind of an anti-racism? Or- yeah, so I think you would say the underlying sacred value is a belief in egalitarianism, right? So using a forbidden base rate, that's what he calls them, is just another way that you might violate that sacred value. Um, so you can think of the... Um, the insurance study is one example of using kind of a forbidden, it's not exactly a base rate, but it's yeah, forbidden information, um, information that like seems defensible on its own, but has um, an unpleasant uh, correlation with some sort of group membership, right? Um, another example that's, you know, very salient would be, well, what about certain kinds of profiling? Like, for example, um, if you built a model that said, hey, here's the people who should be getting extra security screenings. And part of what that model spit out was if you're Middle Eastern, you have, let's say, a 50 percent higher chance to be screened. So we don't we're not screening everybody of Middle Eastern descent, but we're screening them preferentially. Um, is that something we should do? And often I think people say, like, well, it doesn't work which is a bit of a dodge, right? Like it might or it might not. But if you say, if your objection is it doesn't work, then you're kind of conceding that if it did work, we should do it. And I think the question really is like, even if it were effective, would that be an okay thing to do, right? And I think a lot of racial egalitarians would, if you push them on, I would say no, right? Like, okay, I'm willing to give up a little bit of screening effectiveness because the cost to this class of people is unacceptably high, right? I have a commitment to egalitarianism that I don't want to violate in this case. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, the actual here's a case where like dollar and cents that would uh, it would save, for example, airport screening a lot, and it would, it would be a, burden, a much less burdensome to go through security. But is that worth the the harassment that Middle Easterns would experience? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, for myself, I would not be for that. Although I do see some wisdom in it too. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say like look, uh, you're asking this class of people to bear a burden that's maybe unfair, right? So yeah, it makes the screenings more effective by hypothesis. Uh, I mean, I obviously don't really know whether it does or not, but like assuming in this example it does, screening's more effective. But on the other hand, um, a lot of people who didn't do anything wrong are now going to get hassled at security just because of uh, where they happen to be from. And that just strikes people as really unfair. Um, so it's, punish- it's, a coll- it's a like collective, collective punishment. punishment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. this, the large group of people, the vast, vast, vast majority are not involved in any of this stuff. So that's right. Why, that's should, right. They, why should they be punished for the few? Right. So that would be an example of a of forbidden base rate. Right. And I, I think, you know, you're um, saying what uh, racial egalitarians typically would say is like, that's just not OK. Right. Even if it's more effective, that's not OK to do that to that group of people. Um, so, yeah, that's. um 
I guess that's sort of the end of moral cleansing. And then the the last thing that uh, Tetlock talks about as a component of this model is this idea of uh, reality constraints. And and the idea here, I I think to me this is all the kind of the coolest part of the the whole thing, which is that like if we talk as if these values are infinitely important, but on some level we realize that they can't be, um, because resources are finite. So uh, the way he puts it is, if parents dedicated their net worth to their children's safety, they would impoverish themselves. Likewise, a society committed to guaranteeing state-of-the-art healthcare for all citizens would soon devote its entire GDP to the project. The model predicts that, without pressure to confront secular sacred contradictions, people will be motivated to look away and be easily distracted by rhetorical smokescreens. So what people really want is a symbolic kind of stated adherence to these sacred values. And they don't mind so much if they're violated in practice, as long as that isn't done too obviously or flagrantly. Oh, that's interesting. So um, as long, and this is a, I get a signal, signaling argument, as long as it's not so apparent they're violating uh, some sacred value, uh, people are okay with it, even if, even if you are. That's right. That's right. And and the thing is, like, uh, inherent in this, it's really easy to violate sacred values, because if you take a sacred value, literally, it says this is the singular most important thing that we should be devoting all of our resources to. Right. And that can only be true by definition of one thing at a time. Right. So in the real world, policymakers have to make tradeoffs. And uh, that is something that people kind of accept as long as it's not kind of stated explicitly. Um, and you know, what this reminds me of is I, I think we discussed this piece a little bit uh, a couple episodes ago is Talia Coney wrote a, a piece a little while ago about open science and what different things fall under that heading for people. Right. Um, and part of what he said was, well, one thing that falls under open science for a lot of people is the idea of diversity. But of course, there's trade-offs around that. So like uh, you value diversity, but you also value these other things. How are these trade-offs to be managed? And that idea really made people angry. Like they responded explicitly saying, how dare you say that there's a trade-off between diversity and other things? And of course, everybody realizes that there, there has to be, if only because, you know, the budget of the society is finite. Right. And time is limited. Time is limited. Right. So if we really say diversity is the only thing we should be worried about and there's no trade offs possible around it, then like every penny that the uh, society has that uh, is SIPs is what he was writing about in this case has um, needs to be spent on enhancing diversity. Um, every minute of every SIPs meeting needs to be spent on thinking of ways to enhance diversity. And of course, like that's not a world anybody wants. That's not a world anybody thinks is realistic, right? So on some level, we accept that, yeah, we're going to trade off diversity against other things. Like we may think diversity is an important value, but we think that other things also deserve consideration, deserve some resources, et cetera. Um, and implicitly, everybody, of course, acknowledges the truth of that. If you say it too explicitly, that is what's um, that is what's enraging, right? That's when the moral outrage uh, comes in. Oh, that's so interesting. So I, that's that's a new way of viewing that uh, particular trouble. Um, so this is yeah, so you know I, I actually adored uh, this this blog post of Tal's, and I actually pretty much adore everything that Tal does. He's so brilliant. Um, and, and I think this this uh, wasn't this article called something like I hate open science. Yeah. Um, 
That's yeah, right. a very clickbaity title, but very clever. And I think what he was essentially saying is that he hates the term open science because it means 10 different things. Um, it could mean uh, valuing replicable and reproducible science. It could mean uh, putting being transparent and putting up all your code and materials online. Or it can mean making science as open and accessible to as many people as possible. Um, and it means different things to different people. And and again, inherent, as you just mentioned, is that uh, there are going to be trade-offs among all these things because we because time is limited, money's limited, and we can't focus on all of them. And if we focus on one, uh, we're focusing less on something else. And I thought that was a perfectly sensible argument. It made total sense to me. And I was actually surprised at the. I think I think the response was mostly positive, but it was actually it kind of went in waves. Right? Was, uh, the first response was like I think very very positive, and then about uh, two or three days after the blog post came out, there was all of a sudden a bunch of people being, like, "Hey, did he just say there are trade offs such that we can't, you know, that we have to trade off against diversity and against making science as accessible as possible?" And to me, I just saw that as well. Duh. I mean, like, like again, time is limited, but I think you know his uh, Tetlock's model makes makes perfect sense of this because he's, su he's suggesting it's because of the way Tal made that argument. He made the argument clear and transparent and logical, and people would rather not see it painted that way. They'd rather we obfuscate. They'd rather we maybe maybe signal. Um, maybe we kind of talk the talk, but in reality, we're, we're doing something else. Um, it seems actually people were, uh, were, uh, from Tetlock's paper, people seem to be willing to accept even flimsy explanations, as long as they're not like blatant kind of in your face. It's just a, a, a trade-off here. That's right. So the way he puts it is people are willing to look the other way as long as taboo trade-offs are not flagrantly paraded before them, which I, that's a very Tetlockian phrase again. And this is why I love his writing flagrantly paraded. It's just so great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Tal did. He flagrantly paraded it and that pushed buttons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from this lens, it makes total sense now. Um, so then I mean, I thought we've been talking about like diversity as a sacred value for like, well, since I talked about the beer, really. Um, but I mean, that's clear, right? I mean, it's not even like a debate, right? That like egalitarianism, anti-racism uh, are things that, okay, so again, some of the features are um, we won't accept any trade-offs. Um, we are evidence, uh, what was it? Evidence insensitive? Evidence insensitive. And yeah. maybe even dose insensitive. Yeah. So is that true for all? So is it, does, it, does, it, does it fit all those three? Um, that so trade-offs, and then we just talked about with you yeah. know Tal mentioning that uh, evidence insensitive. Uh, is that the case? I mean, that's a that's an interesting one because there is so much evidence flying around a question as complicated as does increasing, let's say, organizational diversity uh, benefit or harm that organization? That evidence and sensitivity doesn't seem exactly the right way to put it. I would see people on both sides of that choose their facts, and there's a lot of facts to be chosen from. So there it seems a little less applicable. I wonder, Just because it's so mixed, you mean? Yeah, because yeah. the evidence is so mixed. I wonder if you pushed people and you were like, you know, do you think that we should enhance diversity even if it leads to bad outcomes for the organization? I think some people might say, yeah, and that that would be an example of evidence and sensitivity, right? And like, 
you know, when you, when you say that phrase, it's like, ah, people are being dumb and it doesn't have to be right. Like we can have kind of moral, uh, standards that we want to uphold regardless of the outcomes, right? So we might say, like, the U.S. doesn't torture. I'm sorry to make this American-centric. Uh, <laughs> Canada <laughs> obviously doesn't Clearly torture. Clearly Canada doesn't torture. The U.S. doesn't torture. We're not going to torture people even if it would yield valuable intelligence, right? So there you might say, oh, how can you be so evidence insensitive? It's like, well, because we have a principle, right? right. Same, same. So yeah, so I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I actually think, like, and again, maybe this reflects my own like uh, sacralization of diversity. Um, I think that the question of whether diversity is good or bad for an organization is orthogonal. It's kind of like, like okay, it might be good or might be bad, but like I don't care. It's I, I it's a value that I have. I think I want to you know elevate as many people as possible uh, who have not had power in the past, and it's not really about the. the the bottom line of a company, it's more about what is correct, what is the right thing to do morally. So I guess, I guess in, in this case, I'm evidence insensitive. It's a value I have. Are, are you really? I mean, like, there's got to be some sort of like place where you draw the line, right? So if you're like, look, the problem is the U of T faculty are too white. And what we're going to do is we're just going to randomly choose non-white people from the population and we're going to make them faculty. That's, I assume, right. no, not something no. you'd be, right? No, yeah. it would be for that. Right? So, so at a certain point, you're like, yeah, there's, there are trade-offs to be considered, right? Sure. I'm not willing to do absolutely everything to maximize diversity. Sure. And even stuff like, okay, um, there was a Dutch university that set aside positions for, what was it, six months for women? So, like, they try and hire a woman for six months, and then if they can't hire a woman, then they, they can open it up to men as well. And I, I think a lot of people were uncomfortable with that actually. Right. And that's a diversity increasing move. That's their stated reason for doing it. But that sort of bumps up against our norms of, I guess, other kinds of egalitarianism or, or fairness, fairness. Fairness. Exactly. It's um, also, I think, infantilizing a little bit, too. Right. So you're that's that's something that like you know, I mean, my example of like randomly select Toronto residents to be on the faculty is fanciful. This is something that people are actually doing. And yet, you know, lots of people think, yeah, diversity is an important value to me, but that's a bridge too far. Right. Sure. So there is there is some sort of trade off based thinking there. Yeah. So I'm willing. For, I, I agree. I'm willing to have trade offs and to think about them carefully. So do we want to, uh, for example, be completely blind to any kind of. Uh, background information of, let's say, U of T candidates? Um, or do we want to completely be open or only see the characteristics and select there? And I, I, I don't think either of those are correct. I think it should be based on merit, but also then should be weighted to some extent, if you can do that, um, based on characteristics. So I, I guess it'd be a blend. I guess a trade-off. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm willing to have some trade-offs there. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. We've been focusing on like the stuff on the left. Um, and I think it's just the stuff that's closest to home for us. And, you know, obviously um, this uh, thinking exists regardless of your politics. So you had already mentioned um, religious uh, injunctions being a prime example of this. Um, social conservatives valuing sexual purity and chastity, um, valuing patriotism, like all of those can can be sacred values as well, obviously. Um, we just haven't spent a lot of time on them because I feel like they're a bit less interesting. I think it's also like just less, um, we see those issues uh, pop up less because 
you know, liberals dominate academia and, and, and the, the, the issues. Yeah, there's not a big fight about whether we should be, you know, singing the national anthem before our faculty meetings. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess on a national level, you know, there's debates about like various kinds of harm reduction policies. Um, I don't know, needle exchanges, um, birth control. Um, like providing free birth control to teenagers, let's say, for example, I, you know, I mean, Canada, I feel like is a bit more sane about this stuff, but then in the U S like those are, those are live issues. And I feel like people's objections to those kinds of programs are often based in, in sacred value thinking where, uh, it doesn't really matter. Is the outcome going to be better in the short run? If we do these things, it's, but we have like a moral prohibition that says, you know, we shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage and we don't want to promote that as a society, right? So to forget about like the costs and benefits of like this condom provision program. It's just sending a bad message. Yeah, that, 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 thank you for mentioning that. We've been so focused on, on, on the left and you're right. This, this is so apparent on the right as well. And the needle exchange is a great example. It's still kind of, contra I mean, we have a bunch of places here in Toronto, all over Canada with uh, fr uh, yeah, free needles for, for uh, heroin addicts. Uh, but it's controversial because you're right. I think for some people, the idea of anyone ingesting uh, a, a, an illegal drug is uh, is complete taboo. It, it, it is a sacralized value. Um, and we're focusing on the ones that, yeah, maybe are, uh, yeah, on the left, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, this is like our backyard, right? So that's the stuff that kind of like we bump into. Right. I, I, I've yet to see, and I doubt I'll ever see uh, free needle exchange beer. <laughs> That, that just doesn't sound appetizing. How about abortion beer? <laughs> abortion <laughs> beer. That's a marketing opportunity, man.